I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with your investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 100, we read God and Man at Yale by William F. Buckley, published in 1951. All right, 100 episodes. This is our 100th episode. We've been doing this for about three and a half years. Pretty cool, Kyle. Did you think that we would make it this far? No, and I didn't think this many people would listen to us. Uh, it's, it's, really, it's been a treat, really. It's really, it's, it's quite something. Indeed. And so I want to thank all those listening now. The, thanks for your support and for for listening. And hopefully it's been interesting and entertaining. It's been fun for us, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, 100 episodes, you know, that puts us in the 99.5 or something percentile of all podcasts. I mean, we're not uh, we're not getting millions of downloads uh, or anything, but most podcasts, like ninety percent of podcasts or something like some huge number, end after ten episodes. So the fact yeah. that we've gone a hundred episodes that puts us um, in an elite group. But uh, the, the more important thing is, it's been fun. I, you know, I've learned a lot, and and uh, I. I'm confident we would not have stuck with it had we not had the the kind of response that we've gotten. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And we'll have some uh, a little more, a few more reflections on on the hundredth episode. But first, uh, let's talk about Buckley. Right. William F. Buckley Jr. was born in New York City in 1925. Raised in Mexico and Europe, he returned to the United States as a young man and served in the U.S. Army in World War II. After the war, he attended Yale University, graduating in 1950. After graduation, Buckley published God and Man at Yale in 1951, the first of 50 books he would author. He founded National Review in 1955, serving as its editor-in-chief until 1990. During that time, National Review became the standard bearer of American conservatism, promoting the fusion of traditional conservatives and libertarians. Buckley hosted the weekly PBS show Firing Line from 1966 to 1999. He became the most prominent public intellectual in America and the nation's most prominent conservative voice for decades. He died in 2008 at the age of 82. God and Man in Yale is maybe one of the most, if not the most, famous uh, conservative book. And we have held off just a little bit because uh, we I had read it before and uh, there... There's some good stuff in here, but a lot of it, to be frank, is is dedicated to some very specific criticisms he has of some some very particular professors at Yale, and so yeah. and so the applicability in some ways is not uh, you know isn't as broad. But for our 100th episode, we thought, God, we got to do something special, and there's no one more important to conservatism than Bill Buckley. I mean. He is the godfather of of contemporary American conservatism, and obviously, it's evolved over the years, and it's not the exact same flavor as when Buckley was alive. But he got the movement started, and so I think we wanted to celebrate a little bit by 
reading one of his books, this famous book for our 100th episode. So much of the book is, as I say, dedicated to very specific criticisms he has of the uh, political science department and certain professors uh, in, uh, in social science in particular, but also in the economics department. But I think there are uh, a handful of, of takeaways that are really evergreen when it comes to complaints that we as conservatives have against the, uh, the academy. And mm-hmm. so uh, we'll hit each one of these individually, but he has some thoughts about uh, how Christianity is treated, how the market, the free market is treated, private property, and, uh, and just the role of government in general. And and sometimes reading something old um, makes you consider things you don't really think about. Like I don't think anyone today thinks of Yale as a religious school, you right. know. It, 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 but like all of the really ancient colleges, and it's you know it predates the United States by a century. Um, they were all founded basically to uh, train men to preach the gospels. Like that was. That was the reason you even went to college in in the really old days. That's why Oxford and Cambridge and all these places were were founded. It wasn't so much about secular uh, scientific pursuits or any of the the various things that they later came to be. They started out first as a place where you you learn to be learned in uh, in theology and religion, and you could go out and and get ordained and preach. And even in America, it quickly fell away from that. Not everybody who went in colonial times to college became a minister, but that was the main purpose. And there, you know, this was, it was a school that was, it was chartered by the state of, or the colony of Connecticut, which had a, a state religion, uh, congregationalism, like most of the new England colonies. And it was, it was in that vein. And, and by the time we get to 1950, as Buckley's graduating, it seems, um, that's still in the air, you know, it's still sort of like, this is a Christian institution, but we just don't ever actually do anything about it. And that, that's kind of, I think, what is bothering Buckley. Like, like you said, this, there's some very specific criticisms. And sometimes it feels like this book is directed at, like, the 16 men who sit on the board of trustees of <laughs> Yale in 1951. It's, it's not meant for a wide audience, I don't think. But it, but it also kind of does get into some wider issues because he is that kind of – he's not just – it's not just specific beefs like this professor sucks or whatever. It's, it's that you're saying, you know, there's a bigger issue here about – how we treat, like, what is the norm that we start at when we're building a college and, and educating men? And, and it was all men in, in, in the 50s at Yale and until the uh, until 69 or 70, they went co-ed. I forget the exact year, but it's it, it was, yeah, this these young men come here. How do we talk to them? How do we teach them? How, do, how does our whole curriculum approach, you know, what it is to be educated? And, and in Buckley's view... Christianity is becoming like a real afterthought at Yale. You get the sense that he came to Yale kind of hoping for or expecting a, a religious education of some, to at least to some degree. Maybe, you know, and he makes the point, he says, I do not feel that Yale should treat her students as potential candidates for divinity school. So he didn't have the expectation that he was going to go there and prepare for the clergy. Like you, like you said that uh, had been the, the tradition uh, er, in, in earlier times. But he said, uh, at the very least, though, he basically expected it to be pro-Christian yeah. <laughs> and, and have the flavor of Christianity and at least uh, be uh, staffed by believers. And essentially, that's not what he found. 
He said the, the faculty tend to discourage religious inclinations or to persuade the students that Christianity is nothing more than ghost fear or 20th century witchcraft. And I mean, that's a little remarkable in 1950. So he's, mm-hmm. well, he's going from 47, 48, 49, 50, something like that. That's just, that's immediately following World War II. Uh, it's, it's not what we would think of as the, the secular era, but uh, Yale was already there. And that's 70 years ago. Yeah, and I think it, it's it's part of a time in America where church attendance was still quite high. But I, I think it's also getting into the era where mainline Protestantism became sort of uh, really broad and not so much with the uh, with the rules and the salvation versus damnation, but more of the a lot of what you sometimes hear from some kinds of preachers today of just sort of a I'm okay, you're okay Christianity. And I think that that vibe trickled down to a lot of the universities and a lot of the mainstream culture because this was a time when uh, m- most of our national leaders, whether it be in politics or in corporate America, were still uh, mainline Christianity, by which I mean, you know, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, some of the the, the grand old denominations, not, uh, you know, ones that are sort of hierarchical, not all the way to being Catholic, but also not non-denominational, just that, that middle ground of uh, Protestantism that, that furnished most of America's early leaders. Uh, and that's kind of what I think Buckley expected. You know, he was a Catholic. That doesn't really come up much in the book, but it was. So he clearly wasn't expecting to be told Protestant doctrine, like you said. But he was expecting that, you know, this should be a Christian school. You know, mm-hmm. that it's, and he, and he says it's uh, due to the, the shibboleths of academic freedom that have so decisively hamstrung so many educators in the past 50 years. He thinks, I, I think he thinks that the, uh, that the president of Yale and, and the uh, heads of the departments and whatnot were just too, so broad-minded in pursuit of academic freedom that they let anybody teach their, not anybody, anybody, these were the elites among professors, but anybody in terms of his ideological rigor or, or theological convictions. And I, I think, Again, that sounds kind of normal for a, one of the big schools today, right? I mean, like I, I, we both went to schools that are religious, kind, you know. But I mean, when I was at St. Joe's, it kind of felt like what Buckley's talking about at Yale in the fifties—that there's a, yeah, it's Christian. We just don't do anything about it, you yeah. know. You know, like it comes up. There's crucifixes in the classroom at St. Joe's, or there were in the nineties, and you know, there, and there are theology classes you have to take. But, uh, you know, you know, some of your professors aren't in line with that and you can tell which ones are which and that you know that's nobody cares so it, it i think that's kind of what i was a little surprised at that because and i think he kind of had the same view like i thought this was you know like like a lot of the boarding schools like that he would have gone to in those days you know you right. go to chapel you know it's yeah. it's a it's a religiously oriented institution even if it's not a, a full-on seminary so it, yeah yeah it's, it's interesting i mean so my experience was i went to an undergrad institution that was uh, Brigham Young University, obviously LDS Church, and it was very religious. I mean, mm. it, and uh, there were many classes where the professor would have someone pray at the beginning of, of class, and and we had a curriculum that required religious teaching, religious learning. And then for law school later, I went to Georgetown University, which is obviously a Catholic Jesuit school, 
and it's not that I expected the same, you know, prayer in church or sorry, prayer in, in, in class or something, but mm. I was really struck by the fact that there was really no sign of religion whatsoever. I mean, yeah, I mean, really none. And uh, none of the professors, I mean, they were all clearly very secular, I assume, you know, uh, agnostic or atheist to a person. And the only, the only actual religious uh, evidence whatsoever was there's a, there's at least nominally a chapel uh, in the, in the bowels of the basement that's, you know, a a 12 by 12 room with a piano in it. And you're kind of like, Wow. Has anyone been in here before? <laughs> you know, like wow, 80 yeah. years of dust. That's just, you know, <laughs> there's no, that, that was it. And, and, and the only reason I found it is because I was asking about it. And otherwise it, it's, it's not like during the, or at least not during my, uh, visit did, did anyone show it to me? I mean, maybe they do to other people and it just happened to so happen that it didn't for me. But the point being like, uh, you know, I certainly didn't expect, a BYU level of religiosity, but it was a surprise to me to find like, I, I, I don't even know if there was a Catholic person. I mean, you had father Drynan who had been a professor. He was also a member of Congress, but he was, he was dead by the time I went to law school, I think, or close to it. And so there, it's not like there was, there wasn't even as far as I can remember a single priest, um, in the building. So, (laughs) Uh, so yeah, I mean, and, and, uh, of course this was in, you know, the, the early aughts of 2000, but, um, and, and, and obviously 50 year, more than 50 years since, uh, you know, Buckley had this experience at Yale, but, but it is, uh, you know, I don't know, it's, it, that's the state of, of, of learning right now is, it, it, you know, it used to be that these schools were, had some foundation in religion and now there's almost no sign of it. And it, it kind of proves what he says in the first chapter. He says, if, if speaking of the urgency of that moment, he says, if the present generation of Yale graduates does not check the university's ideological drive, the next generation will probably not want to. Yeah. And he's, yeah, I mean, when I read that, I was like, yeah, they definitely, they would, they would laugh at you if you said, you know, isn't this a Christian school? Like, what? No. <laughs> like, not in years. I mean, there, yeah, there's probably chapels there too, but it's not. It's not the same, and his point is that he thinks highly enough of the school to to think that the teachers are going to influence the graduates. They're going to learn something there, learn something about their outlook on the world, and what they're learning is uh, pure secularism and kind of anti-individualism, which is the other mm-hmm. uh, individualism versus collectivism is the other divide he's he's talking about in this book. And I I, I think it's it's something that we've been having this kind of conversation for uh 70 something years now about you know universities are woke you know and and they're uh they're perverting the minds of the youth i i don't think it's untrue but i just think it's also been going on for a very long time and to the extent that he's talking in here about academic freedom being a a problem and i think there's no conservative on campus who would say that today because academic freedom is the only thing protecting conservative uh, professors anymore mm-hmm. yeah. or conservative student groups or or anything it's it, like now that we are the uh at least in academia the minority now you know academic freedom and free speech and tenure and all these things are 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 precious to us i think buckley's still thinking they could win 
Right. <laughs> so he's saying, no, we need to enforce a little bit of ideological conformity. Not 100%, not every opinion. He talks about, you know, we don't, not every English professor has to think the same books are good, you know, but there has to be something beyond just being, just having a, a doctorate and being learned in the subject. There has to be more than that. And, it, you know, and, and the, the trustees and the president should enforce this. And I don't know, I kind of hesitate to think now, having basically lost the culture war, what it would look like if universities were enforcing ideological conformities on the professoriate. I, mean, I don't, I, <laughs> there wouldn't be many of us left there. Well, it goes to show you, you know, that, uh, when it comes to I- enforcing thought control or, or, uh, the narrative or controlling the information, you know, it can go wrong in the other way, I guess. Cause he he says almost all of the books assigned dealt with religion wholly as a cultural phenomenon, which I think mm-hmm. most schools do. Now at BYU, they certainly wouldn't. And I, I never came across a book like that. And, you know, and maybe that's, that wasn't that maybe that didn't give me the, the full education that I, I probably should have had. But so I do have mixed feelings about having, you know, ideological conformity and certainly and the back end where we are now, uh, we would be the losers in that, in that scenario. But, um, this one, this thing j- jumped out at me and I think he mentioned it just a little bit too. He says, students who come to college with strong religious convictions, they're the ones who will take active part in one or more undergraduate activities as far as, uh, re- religious clubs or something like that. The majority of the students, he says, will unconsciously look to see what the authorities judge to be important. If religion is relegated to the role of not too important sideshow, then it is small wonder that a majority of students will go their way. Mm-hmm. Troubled, perhaps, and a little uneasy in the absence of answers upon the assumption that religion does not matter. And so this does go to the question that you raised, which is, to what extent do students, are they inculcated, and do they take that, and, you know, do they, you know, do they, do they take their uh, social consciousness, so to speak, or religiosity from school, or can't, can it be harmed? And it's, I mean, the answer is probably a mix, you know, some... Some kids are going to go and it's not going to change their opinions at all. I mean, certainly like at Georgetown, it was extremely secular, but you know, I was 20 something years old and basically had decided what I thought about most things in the world. I mean, whether I was right or wrong. So I wouldn't say it had much of an effect except to annoy me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it didn't certainly didn't change my mind on much. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe uh, as an undergraduate, it did. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But that is a, an interesting debate because, um, I mean, I, to me, it, it always has been an interesting question of when my kids go to college, are they going to all of a sudden obtain all their views from the professors? I think that's less likely than what they're, what they're going to do is learn what the other students, you know, their peers think, and and that becomes the new sort of cultural milieu that, that they're a part of and and they adopt is it seems like more likely to me but what do you think I, I think that's right that makes a lot more sense um it's sort of like how um like kids who grew up in immigrant households they they don't have an accent like their parents do they learn from their peers you know yeah. that's how language is transmitted and even no matter what's being spoken at home they learn that the pure american english because they're out there talking to other kids and then going to school and learning things and that i yeah i don't I don't think, but I mean, I know I, I was already conservative by the time I went to college and it was, I, I mean, I was, I felt like I was in the minority, but I also felt like at that time it my views were pretty much respected and I wasn't the only conservative there. And, 
it felt like you could disagree and it, and most professors would not hold it against you and you figured out which ones wanted just to hear what they had already told you and repeated mm. back to them and you right. just did that and got your grade but i mean i remember I, I took some philosophy courses where i was definitely on the other side of the professor and i it was fine it was okay um so i guess to your point i was already stubborn enough not to be affected by it and i did learn things and you get to hear things from the other point of view which is useful as long as it goes both ways i mean i I, I, I kind of hate the uh, the closing of the American mind like that other book, you know, um, the idea that hearing another point of view is, is just too traumatic, you know, and you can't, you can't do it. I, I think college is a place and that's sort of what the, with the, the generation that came after Buckley, I, th- I think even to the extent that many of them were to the left, they were left liberals and they, they believed in that exchange of ideas because at that point, they were the ones who were trying to break into it. They were coming up against mainstream mm-hmm. culture and they were the counterculture. And they just said, Hey mate, we just want a fair airing for our views. We just want to be able to have different opinions and not be punished for it. And I, I, I think when sometimes when you talk to old liberals, you get that view still, you know, mm-hmm. even though they, they, boy, they hate Trump as much as anybody, but they also, they love civil liberties in that really neutral sense. A lot of the, that the old hippie generation, they, they actually believe what we all thought we were supposed to believe, the sort of stuff the ACLU used to do before it just became like a progressive front like every other, you know, back mm-hmm. when they were like, yeah, we'll defend your free speech even if you're pretty gross and odious. You know, speech is speech. You've got a right. So I, I think that that spirit was definitely still in college when I was there. Um, and maybe it still is. I, I, I wonder sometimes how much of what we read is exaggerated. You know, yeah. in the, in the right wing press, the left wing press will tell you everything's fine. There's nothing going on. The right wing press acts like it's, you know, a cultural revolution every day at college. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm 42 years old. It's been a while since I've been in college. So it's, I don't think it's, I, I think my kids will probably go and like you said, be more affected by their peers. Cause kids are always affected by their peers. They want to do something that's cool, you know, or trendy. I mean, we're young people are affected by that more than curmudgeons like us but i i'm i don't know i'm not too worried about it for some reason maybe i should be well so that being the case and assuming we're we're right or at least on to something about about uh, students sort of adopting what their peers think or at the very least it really uh, they absorb it i mean maybe there is more to worry about now even than before because now it's not just professors trying to trying to influence kids and convince them of one thing or another but but now you have on some campuses the the pure crazy and mm-hmm. they're the ones who are who are the, the the real actors in canceling and so forth but then again that goes to your other point of like how realistic is this it certainly is real on a lot of campuses uh probably less so for a bunch of state schools you know for or community colleges where most people actually go to college mm-hmm. um and where they don't really have time or don't spend a lot of time, you know, worrying or thinking about these types of things. But I'm certainly with you and anyone who's followed this podcast at all would know that I think both of us, but certainly I speak for myself, believe strongly that ideas should be aired. And I, I really don't like any sort of censorship. I mean, there, there's age appropriate stuff. I certainly don't want, uh, yeah, well, I don't want yeah. elementary kids uh, introduced to pornography or whatever, but, um, as things along those lines, but when it comes to college, once you're in college, I think it's open season. And I think that you should be challenged. And I think my own kids 
should be introduced to all kinds of ideas. That's a little bit different, though, than what I think what Buckley's the most annoyed with is he's it, I he probably is annoyed that that they're they're not more more religious openly, but I think I sense that his his greater irritation is that it's not just that they're not you know openly actively religious; it's that they're actually some subterfuge going on. There's they're subverting the the cause of religion, yeah. Not openly, may, may, you know, not loudly, but quietly and with every one of their books and with all their comments, and it just slowly starts to chip away. I think that's it, and that's kind of the problem we get in the culture today at large. And I think a lot of these things, like a lot of the crazy ideas do start out in elite institutions and are dismissed. And it's just, you know, that's just eggheads getting their PhDs talking about that. It doesn't matter. And then all of a sudden they're, you know, everybody in America knows what critical race theory is now. Right. 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 So these things do trickle down. I think, and and it's like you said too, I, I think there's a lot less of the craziness at state schools and at community colleges because people are going there because they want to get a job, you know, like they want to, they're trying to learn skills for life. I, at the more elite institutions, I think it's a lot more of like, Oh, don't worry. I'm going to get a job. I, you know, I'm going to come out of here. I'm here to, you know, develop, you know, new ideas and think, you know, like the old change the world. Yeah. Yeah. Old, like old school, like the stuff gentlemen used to go to college for back when nobody went to college. So it's in one way it's, it's removed from, the masses you know like most of us never have to deal with it but in another way these are the people who run the country you know i mean if you look at go through the biden administration and see how many say yale harvard princeton absolutely you know, yeah. it, 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 I, there's tons of them like most of the supreme court so it's it does matter you know i mean you might not run into these folks on a daily basis but they're the ones writing laws or more importantly writing regulations i mean i i run into them quite a bit and i work with quite a few and and to me if there's anything that i've learned it's that you can go to a state school or i mean sorry uh, an elite institution and still come to some really ridiculous conclusions <laughs> you know? and 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 but but even more importantly may, you know maybe someone's saying like oh of course you think that because you're you're a chump who you know didn't go to an elite school but um well, if if it was so, you know, if it really was a, a factory for churning out like deep and really intelligent thinkers, then they wouldn't come out all cookie cutter. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Honestly, yeah. you wouldn't have ninety nine percent of them coming out s- spouting the same stuff. You you would have a, a, a people developing their thinking and a wider range of views, which you just flat do not have. And I mean the 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 salient point to me about the fact that so many Biden administration people went to Ivy league schools or whatever, you know, in Harvard and Yale and so forth is that they're not Republican because they all think the same way. You know, they're not, mm-hmm. none of, there's very few conservatives. They all think exactly the same, you know, which comes back to my, my personal kind of uh, criticism of, of the, the theory of diversity in general is that, I think diversity is good, but the, the the greater virtue is diversity of thought, and there really right. is none at all happening. Right, and that's that's what should matter more, you know. And I wonder how much. I wonder how many people are, you know, who think like us are opting out and going to, you know, the because the there are still conservative schools out there, and I, and I wonder how many just take a look at a place 
like Yale or Penn and say, why well, do I want to go there and be the only one? You know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly happening. And, and for my own experience at Georgetown, I mean, you tell me what you experienced at GW, but I mean, I spoke up a lot when I first got there. And in mm-hmm. fact, when I took the constitutional law class, the professor started referring to just about every Scalia or Rehnquist decision. He'd refer it, refer to it as Corey's position on this would be, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And that was kind of fun for a while. But after a while, you're like, I am the only one in here. And there there were a couple others, but they were not going to open their mouths and, and subject themselves because, you know, this was 15 years ago, so it wasn't nearly as nasty. I mean, now... Now I probably wouldn't say a word because, um, you know, I, they, instead of just debating me, they would, you know, report me to the, to the thought police at the school or something like that. So. Yeah. Sometimes you just want to live, you know, <laughs> you don't always have to be the guy, yeah. you know, the, the opposite one, the contrarian. Uh, yeah. I, I, I used to, I used to enjoy mixing it up too in those same kind of classes. Um, but it was cool. I mean, nobody, I didn't get any static off of it you know i didn't get any pushback on the personal level and i don't think that's the case anymore at at law school law schools seem more radical than regular schools Mm -hmm. you know some of the stuff you see like what happened to Ilya shapiro uh where everywhere he goes now he's getting like heckler's vetoes at him you know they're having sit-ins you know because he had a ill-worded tweet of all things Uh, that's crazy i mean guys going around trying to talk about you know legal concepts and the sort of things law students should be interested in learning and the yeah it's just silenced you know or just shouted down and that is i mean to me that's crazy so yeah i mean i i I guess to bring it back to buckley it was a it was definitely a softer influence in those days but i could see what he's saying about this sort of setting the expectations a certain way and there's just going to be a lot of people who go with the flow say oh we don't really talk about that stuff okay oh this is how we interpret e- economics now okay that's some people don't care people who listen to this podcast probably care about politics but a lot of people don't you know and uh, right. I mean, i've got i've got friends and relatives who are like you know they vote sometimes but they're not as wrapped up in this stuff as i am and so you know if you were in a situation where you want to get this degree you want to you know get through get good grades make friends and the expectation is, these are the views that are acceptable. And we're like, yeah, all right, sure, fine, I'm for that. Yeah, I'll do whatever. whatever. And then, you know, that's that sets a new cultural standard once they're out of school too. Because it, it it once you pick a side, you tend to be on that side. That's we've seen. That's how tribalism works. That's why some of the some of the positions of the two political parties, you think, why is that one and this one in the same part? Well, it's just, it just is. And now it's stuck. That's tribalism. Yeah. You like to go to church and you also don't like capital gains taxes. <laughs> Who knows why? Right. <laughs> but, but that's that. And that's, you know, so I, I think in just these, these subtle sort of hints that he's getting at, it, you see the beginning of, of getting to the pure secularism of, of college today. And it's 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 uh, interesting to see it from the front end and 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 see part of Buckley's genius is is seeing this for what it was back in fifty one where most yeah. people would not have said oh college it's it's you know it's getting too collectivist and, and secular anymore you know, most people would say what are you kidding me no yeah he saw it though yeah and so it's worth mentioning a couple other issues that he that he points out 
he said, I mean, he basically says that Yale professors are essentially anti-free market. He, he doesn't go so far as to say that, but I mean, he says, if a recent Yale graduate who exposed himself to Yale economics during his undergraduate years exhibits enterprise, self-reliance, and independence, it is only because he turned his back upon his de- upon the teachers and the texts. <laughs> uh, it is because he has not hearkened to those who assiduously disparage the individual, glorify the government, enshrine security, and discourage self-reliance. So, I mean, at a very early time, and I, mean, I guess e- even in the 1950s, I guess this wouldn't be so surprising because you'd have a lot of uh, closet Marxists or at, at, at the very least collectivists um, who, uh, you know, pro- maybe admired the Soviet Union, you know, maybe had, uh, but a- again, though, this was immediately after World War II. So in some ways, you know, it is a little bit weird, but, you know, essentially the professors, and I, and I, I to- I've totally found this, I think we all have, is that uh, they're overwhelmingly super economically liberal. You know, they believe mm-hmm. in, uh, that as, as far as they're concerned, Keynes was, was Moses, you know, bringing tablets down and, uh, and that's gospel. And, uh, even, even at my undergraduate school was very conservative, but, uh, the professors, almost all of them were in, in political science. The the majority of them were, uh, were Democrats for sure. And they had very collectivist bents and that's at one of maybe the most conservative schools in the country. And you can imagine that every other school, you know, is just full of of socialists and collectivists and, and, uh, in the economics department. I mean, it's probably different, I think in, in a, in business departments, but a lot of these elite schools don't have business departments. You know, uh, I think, uh, at Penn Wharton is famous, I think in a lot of ways, because it's one of the few elite schools that has a business school. I mean, most of them don't, yeah. they, they have economics, which to them is like, is more like political economy you know, what, uh, what Bernie Sanders would view as, as economics versus like, you know, hard, hard business sort of accounting, uh, numbers, like let's, how to, how to run a business and how to make things work versus, um, I think what you're getting from a lot of professors who, uh, I mean, let's be candid, like they've spent their entire lifetime doing research, studying, trying to get grades versus people who've gone out, ran a business, you know, had employees, yeah. tried to meet payroll, and understand what the government what government regulation actually does. It's not just this theoretical thing. It's this thing that's actually holding us back from being successful, and it's not even achieving the goal that it supposedly is set out to achieve. So. Yeah, that's a good point. And and hearing hearing it from professors too is it's like when we read Michael Sandel's book back in episode uh, ninety, talking about how meritocracy is is bunk and failure, and you know, I mean, like here's a dude who made it to the top. There was merit. <laughs> exactly. <You know? laughs> I mean, I think a lot of this is like a, it's like psychology, you know, he feels unworthy and yet he is judged worthy. So there must be something wrong with the system. Well, maybe he's actually good though. You know, maybe Sandel is a good professor. You know, that's, I don't know. That one just made me think of that. It kind of yeah. But I mean, and not to be too snarky, but honestly, my, my view has always been, and maybe it's just because of my snark, but like, if you want to atone for whatever sin that you think you're, you're imagining, then why don't you give someone else your job? You know, yeah, like how about that? don't don't get the job and then pull the ladder up from behind you and stop other people, you know, fr- from from getting there. I mean, that's what annoys me. But. Yeah, like when Biden said he was going to 
pick a woman for vice president. It's like, why don't you, why don't you let them pick one for president? There's a few running against you. <laughs> right, you <know>? exactly. <laughs> Get out of the way, old man. If that's what you believe in, take yeah. a hike. You know, let let Amy Klobuchar be have that job. You know, but yeah. but no, it's never that. It's always the next or everybody else has got to conform to these. Uh, well, this has well, come up, and, and and not to be too partisan, but I mean. This is coming up again with the Supreme Court justice because the, uh, the the Democrats are celebrating and that this is the first black uh, African American woman on the Supreme Court and that in and of itself I guess is a cool is you know certainly a cool thing but uh, we would probably we would already have most likely the first African American woman on the Supreme Court Janice Rogers Brown if it wasn't mm-hmm. for Joe Biden and Democrats blocking though that nominee i mean sotomayor ended up being the first hispanic but most likely the first hispanic would have been miguel estrada had they not blocked him and and i think of this too uh back in 2000 i think it was 2006 when when senator Cardin won in in maryland he beat michael Steele, an african-american man so you know ultimately it's like yeah but uh you might have color but uh you don't have our monolithic views so you don't count you know you're not you're not actually um you know, part of the ethnicity or skin color that you claim to be. Yeah, it's 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 all it's all hot air. You know, all that stuff only matters once you check the right political boxes. Then you know, sky's the limit. And yeah, it's uh, it comes up again and again. And it, like like how both parties switch sides on the filibuster when co- change when the control of the Senate uh, changes hands. Right. Uh, <laughs> nobody's the least bit embarrassed about it. It's just <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing with these things. They say, oh yeah, yeah, for this and that. But what about this? What about, yeah, what about Michael Steele? Uh, no, it doesn't count. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. okay. It doesn't matter. And, you know, they, no one ever calls them on it on the main, in the mainstream press and no one ever will. So it's uh, just a little bit of cynicism in uh, federal politics. Well, so we've, uh, we, we, I think we've covered Buckley here and it might as well have a few thoughts on, on our 100th episode. We've talked about a little bit about this when we interviewed ourselves, but I wonder what you think, Kyle, about you know what Buckley laid out here, what he laid out in the you know the book that we read in season one. He is the godfather, I, I believe, of of conservatism. And do you think that today's conservatism would be recognizable to him, or do you do you think it's there's been some pieces that have carried through? What do you think? I. I think in some ways, yes, because I think he's the one who really brought intellectual rigor to American conservatism. And it, the the libertarian kind of part of it always had that because it's a more academic idea. But, you know, he traditional conservatives, I think, in the pre-New Deal times, say they didn't really need that much intellectual rigor because it was just doing what we've done. You know, maybe changing it a little in the Burkean sense, slow progress towards a slightly better tradition. But I think Buckley really drew in a lot of intellectual threads. And and, and after seeing conservatives and, and Republicans just sort of bash their heads against the wall for 15 years uh, against Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, I think Buckley is the first one to say, look, what, we've got a lot of new challenges in this world. We've got this Cold War. We've got, you know... We're now the most powerful country. There's a lot of things going on. What's the path we should chart? And I, that's still, he made conservatism more of an ideology in America and less of a, uh, a mood or a, or a temperament. So I think, I think to that extent, what everything we do is an outgrowth of that fusionist moment. 
Now, there's some stuff you wouldn't recognize, I'm sure. I mean, but that's, I think you have to say that from, I mean, there's stuff Roosevelt wouldn't recognize about the Democratic Party. Yeah, and, and mm-hmm. Quite a bit, I think, <laughs> you know, but I, I think Buckley got it started and we're all continuing to tread in those footsteps to some extent. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think, you know, one of the things that Buckley did, and I think we discussed this in, in the first season, but one part of his task as he saw it was to, to push out what he called the kooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's, there's always been a strain of, of kookiness. And I think this obviously applies to both parties, but he wanted to make it a, he wanted to make conservatism a serious, uh, intellectual bulwark. And I think he succeeded. And I think, uh, a lot of the populism is what he what he aimed to push out. And I think at this point, um, at least the Republican Party is a lot more populist than it's been in my in our lifetime, I think, in our lifetimes. Um, and so I do wonder what he would think about the situation now. And in some ways, you know, uh, the populism has come to the right because, to your point about FDR, wouldn't wouldn't recognize parts of the Democratic Party because his coalition was the coal miner in West Virginia, and yeah. uh, and now that that coal miner voted for Trump, and so I think in both both Buckley and FDR would look at that and say, "Geez, I didn't see that coming." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in terms of uh, having religious values, of uh, seeing the the virtues of the free market, um, the protection of private property. Uh, understanding the limits of government. I think those basically carry forward. I think they do. All right. Good enough. That's our 100th episode. That's Buckley. Catch us next time.